0: Love Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. Episode number 24, we'll be talking condros with Ken Deal and John Irby. It is 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, March 3rd, 2019. And it is winter is still here at the top secret Northern Studio location. Um, We did take a hit earlier today. We lost power, but we came back on about 30 minutes ago. So we are up and running, and I am here with
1: Bill. How are you, sir? Hey, how are you, buddy? I'm doing great. Uh, it's been a great weekend, and I'm super pumped about this show, man.
0: It's gonna be a good one.
1: Hey, where did you uh, where did you spend the weekend? Like you were posting a, a ton of cool pics on Facebook. Um, so actually, not far from where I live. We live uh,
0: near a great outside outdoor like sanctuary area it's uh one of the watershed areas for uh Baltimore City and it is about as wild as you can get in this area um and it's just it's a great place a lot of water a lot of uh cool things to do a lot of fun things to see uh any time of the year um but my wife and I spent most of it out there with uh, my uh two sons just goofing around uh you know trying to be outside and uh, keep those guys off electronic devices as much as possible.
1: Yeah. Very, very solid. Did you guys, did you guys camp out there or stay out there or, or what? Uh, you can't,
0: um, we did uh, last night when we came home, my one son said, Hey dad, let's just uh, keep it rolling. And let's, uh, let's just throw up the, our tarp and, uh, roll out the sleeping bag, ground cloth and sleeping bags and ground pads and, uh, finish it up outside. So that's what oh, we did man. last night. So we no. uh, we finished it up. It was a good experience. Uh, we did find out, however, my oldest son, who's went through a tremendous growth spurt in the past three months, um, we bought him. We had to buy him a new sleeping bag because he was too short for his old one. <laughs> so his uh, old mummy bag came to his shoulders. Um, so of course, Dad forgot that. You know, we should also probably buy him a new ground pad. Um, so he had to kind of adapt with either keeping his head off the ground pad or his feet off the ground
1: pad for part of the night. But we did it; we had fun. Um, <laughs> well, well, you so. know, you you just remind him that you've slept in your car many a time, and you know that's going to make that ground pad look pretty sweet. With yeah, that's right.
0: Without a ground pad. Right without. A with ground a pad. with a used pa- a used paper towel <laughs> from a carpet fest to cover myself with. <laughs>
1: That you had to that you had to borrow from Owen. Yes. Had to wrestle. Well, you were him. like <laughs> you were like climbing mountains and stuff, you know, out there. That looked pretty cool. Uh, that actually is. We were not climbing anything.
0: That was along the path, and it just had a ledge. And my wife said, "You know, let's act like we're rock climbing." Then we did it, and then someone was like, "Oh, I didn't get a photo yet." So we did it again. So actually, we were literally like six inches off the ground in that photo. Actually, my wife you can't see, tell, but her one foot is on the ground, it just looks like she's actually <laughs> mountain climbing
1: see it looked like it looked like in the picture that she was using like some repelling safety equipment, and you were free climbing. That's what it looked like to me, yeah well, you, know, you, you guys were probably up, yeah, yeah, well, I know that's how you roll, but <laughs> I didn't know you guys were literally inches, inches off the ground.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was a good good photo. And then about uh, 20 minutes later, I fell into the water. So, it was a good time. <laughs> oh my.
1: You know, it's, you know, it's but... ironic. It's ironic we were talking with John and Ken and uh before he came on the show and this is going to be a very very cool um show. We've got Ken Deal who is old school Texas Condro guy. I mean, this guy has so much experience and knows so much history and and, and has some really cool stories. And then we have John Irvy who has for the last couple of years just absolutely blown it out of the park with, with a lot of blue line stuff. So we're gonna have a great um combination of guests tonight. And we always say, you know, we don't want to do a lot of talking on the show, we we like to kind of just get our banner in, say our our hellos and our to-do's, and then get the guests on. But I got a few things I want to talk about tonight before they come on. Sure, do it. Let's do it. Well, the first thing I wanted to talk about was, you know, I'm newly retired. Congratulations. The first month has been absolutely incredible. I mean, just everything Good. that I'd hoped it would be, you know, staying busy, but just able to just, you know, dedicate so much more time and effort into the animals I'm keeping. And I've loved every day of it so far. Nice. Um, but w- one of the things I got to do that I rarely had been able to do in the past was to start vending some shows. And I vended the Arlington NARBC show uh, in February. And I wanted to just take a couple of minutes and talk about that. Sure, let's do it. Did you know that Gary Schiavino flew down and hung out with me and helped me that weekend? Uh,
0: I did. He actually uh, asked me if I would uh, come down and do that as well, but I had a prior engagement, unfortunately.
1: Okay. Um, so, yeah, Gary flew in, and I have not vended many reptile shows. Um, I would say probably a half dozen that I've ever vended. And so it's still a little bit new to me as far as getting everything ready. So he came down on Friday and, uh, early Friday, he had, to, he got up very early, um, because of the time change and got into the Dallas area, uh, you know, probably about 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. And he helped me, you know, go through my collection and, uh, you know, box things up, put them in the cases, get everything ready. And we um, brought the majority of the stuff up Friday. And then, uh, you know, my, my right-hand man, Brian Phillips, uh, was there with a couple of other guys that helped me. And, right. uh, you know, we vi- we vended the show. And we just had an incredible time. Uh, Gary was very helpful. And, you know, he and I are, are, are just are, are very close and very good friends. And we just had the time of our life and uh, the show went well. Um, I did bring some green trees up there. I sold a green tree up there, uh, but nice. it was m- good. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was good. Uh, it, they were more for table attraction though, than anything else because, you know, of course I had the Royals on display up there and I uh, was able to, yeah, was able to you know draw a lot of traffic over because I was the only one there with uh us captive born and bred green tree pythons and everybody knew it and so had a lot of traffic a lot of ball Python people uh, you know that uh, thought that the that the myths about green trees were they're defensive they're not handable they're display animals you know I had five or six there and we had them all out and we were handling them all. And everybody was just amazed, you know, that, that, you, yeah, you can handle these nice. things. So that was really cool. Um, I wanted to throw that out there, you know, I, and I got to hang out with some great people. All these people are people that, you know, um, you know, besides Gary uh, force fanning and his in extremely pregnant wife, Desiree uh, oh, came no. out and there, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was there probably not on her doctor's uh, advice to be traveling when she's due to have a baby in three weeks or something, but she was there, uh, and the, and the cold blooded cafe crew were there. I got to hang, hang out with them. We did dinner with, uh, with, with those folks Friday and Saturday nights. Um, so that was really cool. And then, uh, you know, Evan Broder was there. Um, Got a visit from Matt Morris, came up from Austin, which was unexpected. I had no idea who was coming. I just saw him, you know, and said, wow, you know, I didn't even know you were coming. Uh, Jason Brumley and Brad Florian both came in and got to talk to those guys for a little while. Um, Mark Hager had just come in from Costa Rica and didn't come to the show, but he came and he ate dinner with us on Saturday, so you know just what a you know just just some really really cool stuff and i'm i'm so looking forward to be able to participate in more of those events now that i have more free time and and you know starting to be able to just continue to to propel this the reason that we started this show right what what was it we wanted to dispel myths yep. about green trees and yep. i have decided decided for me personally that the way to do that is to go to shows and bring animals to shows because most of the people listening to this podcast they probably already know you know what we know that those myths are untrue that they're going to die you know on you immediately and that they can't be handled and they're display animals and you know most of the people listening to this podcast I think by now know that Uh, but the people at the vast majority of reptile shows still do not know it. And so my, you know, my kind of, you know, my mission is I want to change that. And so I'm really super excited about doing that. I'm gonna, uh, I've got another show booked, uh, the end of March, March 30th and 31st, a a local Dallas show here that I'm going to be vending. And then I'm going to be vending out in Amarillo, Texas, uh, show in June, um, third weekend in June, and I'll plug in some other, uh, you know, other shows between now and then, I'm sure. But it just gives me great pleasure to be able to do that. And and so I wanted to share that with you. I wanted to share that with the listeners, um, you know, before we delve into, you know, into what we usually talk about, which are our projects before we bring the guests on. And so you've had a busy year this year. Sure. I've had a busy busy and good year this year with, with green trees. So I just wanted to throw that out there first. Um, I can't wait to hear, I kind of know what you've, what you're up to as far as green trees, but, but let's fill the list yeah. in on like what what you got
0: cooking. Uh, um, in the incubator. Um, and I've got, uh, should be my uh, final clutch of the season. The female just did a prelay, um, on the 28th. So, uh, you know, a couple weeks away from another clutch of chondros. So hopefully, uh, you know, that all goes smooth. Get those in the incubator. Where we, you know, showing some babies. Uh, getting some babies ha- hatching out here soon. Um, and that's you know, pretty much it. Already starting to think about, hey, what's gonna, what am I going to pair in the fall? Because we're only, uh, you know, six months away, which seems like forever. But uh, you need to start thinking about, you know, um, what you could pair together and you know, what's going to be the uh, outcome, you know, what's the potential outcome for the offspring and stuff like that. So I like start start to think ahead, how to, you know, maybe do things up. I may actually do, which I rarely do, is I may actually do a repeat pairing this year um, just based on a couple animals that the way – I really like the way they're turning out. Um, But that's pretty much it, you know, just kind of uh, feeding – Feeding and cleaning, and the breeding season is pretty much over except for one more female to lay. And I've uh, got a bunch of animals that I'm ready to – that are ready to go to homes. I'm just waiting for the weather to cooperate weather. Uh, both here and right, wherever the right. animals are going. So so just waiting on waiting on that, and, um, you know, that's pretty much it, just uh, just doing that kind of stuff. How about you? So What's how going many on clutches? down there with you?
1: What? Well, I was going to ask you how many clutches – so you've got one one girl – yet to lay, but how many clutches do you have in the incubator right now? I have two in the incubator. Two in the incubator and one to come. That's yep. uh. Yep. I mean, I mean, th- th- that's kind of a slow year for you, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. The past few years has been a
0: little bit more, but I'm okay with that. I only did three pairings. Yeah, they sure. all three took. Um, you know, hopefully yeah. everything. The one clutch that was laid a few weeks ago looks really weak vein-wise. So, um, coming up on that critical period where if they're not going to, um, get through the, you know, if they're not fertile, it's really hard to tell that the veining the wasn't really strong on it, but they're in the incubator. None of them crashed yet. So, uh, we'll just wait and see, but they're coming up on the, going into the third week for those, I think.
1: Um, so is that usually one thing that, if they're, that, if they're, yeah, it's that third week, then they're, they're going to crash.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's my yeah.
1: experience. Normally, if they
0: look like they're fertile, and you kind of, you know, put them in there, and you know, that's normally when they just start to deteriorate. So, um, we'll see how that one goes. So, that's pretty much it. Um, so you know, the uh, three parents I did, they all they all took at least females, you know, laid eggs, all that fun stuff. Or hopefully, this third one will lay eggs. And um, yeah,
1: yeah, that's it.
0: Next year could be well, a big year cool. if I go with everything I have available. So, but we'll see.
1: Oh, oh is that right?
0: Yeah, but I don't know.
1: <laughs> it's not the breeding, it's the well, babies. I know, I know. Believe me, I know. Well, um I've got uh, one clutch on the ground and it's it's kind of interesting. It's similar to yours. The uh I'm I'm ten days in and it was a clutch. It was um it was a Matt Morris high yellow female that was bred to Jaeger yes. and got thirteen eggs and they they candled, but they candled weak. Um 10 days in but again you know i who knows how how many and how far they will go but so far they look good um i did as you know you know the the sickness in my blue cyclops girl that panned out um and she had a nice nice big ovulation about three weeks ago so total fingers crossed and Prayers, Dorico sent about that because that would be just like my dream. When the when the sickness uh, was produced, that was like my dream stake. This is my dream clutch. You know, this is the one where that could like just like I'm pretty much done. Drop the mic, you know, if if this thing happens. So <laughs>
0: you can't be done yet, though. You just retired and started doing this. That's that's your your goals are
1: set way too low, Bill. You need to reevaluate them. <laughs> oh. No, I, I, I'm a realist, buddy. I mean, <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> but any, anyway, that that girl is 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 doing great. She's well under her way, and just you know, fingers crossed about that. And then you you were it's funny you were talking about how you know pairing chondros breeding chondros, and you know it, it's it's all it's seasonal for me now. It's become seasonal. I don't even have a season. I just, you know, I'll just keep introducing animals, and I'll if they don't go, I'll give them a couple of weeks, and then I put them back in. And if they don't go, you know, a couple of weeks, and I'll wait another month, put them back in. And I've been doing that with a with a pair that I'm super excited about, and they had their first lock last night, or yeah, last night. And oh, I'm nice. super excited. I'm super excited about it, not because it's a sickness blue cyclops type deal. This is like a green snake to a green snake. You know, this this is an Aru locality type bred to a a nice, beautiful, all green female. And I'm super excited about it because I really want this to happen so I can produce entry-level chondros. You know, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Because all the reasons... We have to do that. uh, That I talked about earlier. I mean, it's just... I get off so much on introducing people to green trees and I will not introduce somebody to a green tree with a sickness blue Cyclops clutch. You know, that is not going to happen. Right. So I get to do that if, if this pair happens. So I'm super, super excited about that. Yeah,
0: that's the way to do it, man. That's, that's what you do. You just, I think if we all did a entry level clutch, try to do at least one, one a season. I think, um, I think it would have a vast impact uh, on on the hobby in general and would take care of a lot of the
1: the issues we still see and people are still unfortunately dealing with. Yeah, because you know what? I'm going to, if this thing happens, I'm going to be able to pack, you know, luckily 8 to 20, you know, probably yellow baby condros into my car, and I'm going to be able to take them to Amarillo or to Houston or to San Antonio or Oklahoma city or all these places that are just a few hours drive for me. And I'm going to be able to vend shows with them, you know, and right. that's, how I'm, that's how I'm going to be able to spread the good news. That's it. So what
0: about Tinley? You thinking about uh, Tinley in October? Will you be uh, vending there, Bill? I know you normally go, but will you actually be vending?
1: No, I won't bend there. I'm going for sure. Got the plane, you know, got the ticket in the hotel. Uh, I won't bend there because nothing will be ready. Um, green tree wise. And I'm, I'm not going to waste my time and bring a bunch of Royal Royals up there with everybody else. So I'm just going to go right. and, okay. uh, and have fun. Maybe help you out if if, if you've been. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe it's definitely on the radar. All right, good. I, it was awesome I think the last time you did it. You know, I, I had a lot of fun. I yeah, think you had fun and uh yep. and you know, you sold you sold some animals and and you spread some of the spread some of the condro info.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um and I was with a great group of guys too. I mean, just it can't be any better than who you who I was with. You know, yeah. and, you know, we had a lot of just a lot of support people there too as well. Um hanging out ready to just, you know, watch things for you while you while you uh, were able to escape the table for a little bit, which is which is always nice. Sure. What about uh, Northeast Carpet Fest. Are you coming up for that in June or?
1: Oh, oh that's that's an absolute. That's okay. that's a done deal. I don't I don't miss that. <laughs> I will be there. Good. All right. And you will too. You will too, I'm sure. Yeah, it's it's that's on my calendar. Yep.
0: I already I already that's, had to tell uh, my wife, "Nope, can't can't do it that day. It's Carpet Fest."
1: <laughs> What's the date? I th- I thought I had it on the outline, but I don't see it. It's June what? Uh,
0: June,
1: 8th. June 8th. June 8th. Yep, June 8th. Yep. Listeners put that on your calendar. If I mean, if you have not been to a Northeast the original Carpet Fest, you should be kicking yourself because uh it is a great time, a wealth of information, uh, a lot of chondro people there and a lot of non chondro people there will make which makes it just as good. Yep, it's a fun time. Well, we have bantered on way too long, and I there's a part Definitely. of me that feels a, a little bit of guilt of guiltless about that. So let's get <laughs> Ken and John on. <laughs> okay, let's do it.
0: Ken, and, Ken Deal and John Irby, welcome to GTP Keeper Radio.
2: Thanks for having us. Hey, thanks for the invite to the podcast.
0: You are welcome.
1: Um, it's good to have you guys here, man. It's going to be a great show. Thanks. um sorry about the lengthy uh banner between buddy and i if you guys have ever listened to a show before you know we routinely uh do not do that because we know that uh this show is about the guests you guys are uh the people that the listeners want to listen to so uh i apologize for that but let's get to the meat of this um you know, we always, when we have guests on, we want to know um, a little bit, just a brief introduction about yourself and uh, how you were introduced to condros. So uh, Ken, why don't you, why don't you start and just give a brief intro and, and how you got into the magical land of Condros.
2: Hey, thanks buddy. And um, again, thanks for the invite to the uh, podcast. I think it's a, uh, an excellent venue for um, communicating uh, um this uh, branch of uh which I've really enjoyed over the years, um, from the introductory standpoint, uh, I guess my first uh, real chondro injection was oh in late nineties, where uh, I went to a um, a show, a reptile show, kind of was the first ones that were kicking about in Texas, and Bob Clark was there, and and uh, since then, I've done a few other trades with Bob Clark, and I always find out he sure gets the upper hand, but I got a pair of <laughs> wild caught uh, critters, and I remember one of them was a sarong with a lot of blue on it, and uh, and then a rua type that uh, was, was a big, big female, and... um. It was, it was a, I kept them actually introduced them. I, I pretty much just did not make a big breeding attempt with them all, but in 2000 I had a clutch and that was real exciting for me, but I, I've, I've bred snakes for gosh, I would say, you know, 25, 30 years now. I'm, I'm close to 60 years old and, and buddy, congratulations on your recent retirement. And I know no, that's, is, is tired.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm I'm retired, and and Buddy just wants to be retired.
2: <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Well, <laughs> well, I'm we, I'm 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 moving yeah, in you're that not dr- wrong.
0: <laughs> I'm moving in that direction. I one career.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and and it's it's really going to be a treat to uh, focus more on on um, my breeding colony. Um, I find myself, you know, still having a good number of colubrids. I like, you know, rosy boas. I probably got about twenty, thirty rosy boas, and I like the pyros, um, and um, the knoblichs. I, I I had some good good luck with them last year and produced some some really nice high band count redheads and such. But chondros, I always have believed to be the pinnacle of, of serpents. Um, from uh, the breeding perspective, you know, the different colors uh, as neonates. And, um, and they really are a challenge, but it's a very rewarding uh, hobby.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, we're, we're really glad to have you, uh, have you on the show, Ken. You, uh, you know, we've, we've had a lot of uh, guests that are in your genre, so to speak of keepers and uh, you know, the knowledge that you guys have and the, you know, the way that you guys have shared your knowledge and have been able to bring new generation keepers, you know, like myself and like John, uh, into the hobby has just been, you know, we couldn't do it without, uh, people like you. So really glad to have you on, man. Thanks. Uh, John, how are you, my friend? I'm doing really well.
3: Is that, uh, that's this is Bill. Bill. Yeah. Hey Bill. Yeah. I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having
1: me. Yeah, sure. Did you uh happen to make it down to uh uh the the Carpet Fest with Ian? <clears throat> I did not,
3: but um it looked like a really great time. I I I donated a voucher to it and um and tried to be in support of it, but um I'll need to up that to being in attendance uh next year.
1: Yeah yeah well well definitely i I went to uh that southeast carpet fest not this year but last year and it was really good. It's very well done and um Ian and the people that supported that should be congratulated because you know they they raise they they raise tens of thousands of dollars in that carpet fest down there uh mm-hmm. more than any of the other carpet fests and uh that money goes to to great great things.
3: it it looked like a tremendous amount of, um, work and organization went into it too. So Ian, I know he carried a lot of the load. Um, and so, and I'm sure there are others that I just don't know about, but yeah, they put a lot of work into it.
1: Yeah, they did. Well, why don't you follow up with Ken and, uh, just kind of introduce yourself to the audience and, uh, Hey, how you were introduced to Condra.
3: Yeah, sure. So yeah, my name is John Irby. Um, I live up in Virginia, and I I was introduced to Conros, um from the MVF and, quite honestly, Greg Maxwell's website um, through Google's algorithms or web searches. You know, that was one of the top things that would pop up back in those days, and that was a website uh, that just had really high-def, colorful photos of these you know, outstanding designer animals and and they just really lured me in and that was probably back in the mid 2000s um and then the first actual snake i got you know i drooled over those um online and learned and then bought a um snake from a pet shop for you know something 3 4 500 dollars um a boa uh, male hatchling. it didn't eat for a long time and how, know, i got, how, cut my teeth on that and how long ago? What, you know, when was that? Oh, uh, that was in 2005. Okay. Yep, yep. So back in 2005 is when I started keeping them, and um, I had kept, uh, you know, some carpet pythons and a and a ball python or two, but um, you know, those were all just um, short term until and then when I got chondros. It's been nothing but chondros ever since, and so. Yeah, so I started keeping them in 2005, and then the collection then just exploded and has kind of ebbed and flowed since then. But, yeah, I'm in it it
1: pretty heavy at this point. The collection is the largest it's ever been. How many animals uh, would you say you're keeping, John? So, you know, if you take neonates out,
3: um, there may be... 15 or
1: 18.
3: Um, if you add e- neonates in there, you know, 20 or 30
1: more but on top of that, yeah. 25 more. Nice. Nice. Um, I, I want to get back to Ken to to ask this question, but I'll, I'll ask you uh, now, who would you consider, uh, some of your green tree mentors? Like who are the people that, you know, you mentioned, you know, one, one person and how you kind of got attracted, but who are the people that kind of you you see as your mentors?
3: Yeah, sure. So, you know, other than like I described that collective experience from just
1: participating
3: actively on the MVF, um, you know, I always just, and some of it was through guidance of others saying, Hey, John, what you should do is pay attention to the people that are actually um, hatching a lot of chondros. And so you know, I always took note, too, uh, Greg Maxwell, Terry Phillip, Marshall, Mendez, uh, uh-huh. John Holland, Tim Morris, Rico, Christian Stewart, um, Buddy, Buscemi. Um So yeah. those are who, either through observation or through friendship, I, I feel like those look towards me. And, um, and I, I joke around all the time, and I tell people that I keep Kondro's uh, the Maxwell-Philip method. And it's kind of mostly okay. just a poke and a raz because those right. methods are pretty <laughs> pretty radically apart. But the, it, it right? kind of is, you know. I learned the Maxwell method, and then I brought in some new techniques, and I have this my a blended style. So I I kind of tease them, but yeah, that really is actually probably
1: accurate. Well, we're gonna have all sorts of time to get into husbandry, um, and I can't wait to you know to hear how you keep your animals. Um, because that that's one of the great things about keeping these, these animals right, is there's so many different ways to do it, uh, and so many different ways to do it right and successful. Exactly. Uh, I'm going to go back to Ken in, in one second and ask him about his mentors, but before I do that, could you kind of give us an overview of your collection? Like what, you know, what do you work with? I, you're, you're kind of a designer guy, right? I am. So my collection...
3: So thinking about this, I, I saw the outline for the interview or the uh, the radio show, and I thought about it. A lot of people see me post all this high black stuff, but if you'll notice, no purchases of mine have been anything related to that. Everything that I've bought, high blue stuff. Um, a friend right, of mine, right. Ben Evans, uh, got out of kind of slowed down his collection, and he loaned me some of his animals to work with, and they're just too nice to not use. And so I got lucky and knocked a few clutches out of the um, out with his high black male. And so some high black stuff has infiltrated its way in and, and it's now a large portion of my collection, but I really, really love the blue stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 That's obvious from your, you know, a lot of your pairings and a lot of the, uh, a lot of the adults that you work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ken, let's go back to you for a second. Um, you told you gave us a little bit uh, overview about your background. Who would you say were your mentors in 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 chondros green trees specifically? You know, not just not just reptiles or snakes, but who in green trees really did you look up to or went to for guidance?
2: Well, you know, I, I can echo uh, a good number of the names that that John mentioned. Um, yeah, he kind
1: of he kind he, of took up all the good ones, didn't he? Yeah. He, well, you know, <laughs> there was a,
2: a clan of people in the late '90s and, and early 2000s that were refining the um, um, the hatching uh, and incubation techniques, and it really was, you know, there was a lot of early discussions of of how to do it and what was successful, and. And and Greg Maxwell, you know, because of his uh, uh, marketing strategy, everything from books to being so vocal and giving information, um, uh, he he was instrumental, I I believe. Um, There there was another trigger in, you know, even before that, uh, I was volunteering at the uh, Houston Zoo Reptile House. And uh, John McLean, he's not longer with us, but there was some uh, wild-caught green trees that, um, that were producing these. Um, and I think there was some biak in them and sarong. Um, but they were producing some what what I think only some of the old-timers would know is the Houston Zoo lineage line, which oh, yeah. I, I felt was comparable to the Tim Tremezzi, uh sarong, you know, real bright. Or if not solid uh, yellow critters, and and they actually you know offered me a job in the boa run at that time, but but I went a different career route in the environmental field. But that that exposure, because as a volunteer at a reptile institution, you know I didn't deal with anything venomous. It was it was primarily the colubrids and the boas and the pythons, and and, and John McLean was uh, he was real good to me. And, um, um, those condros were just kind of, uh, um, real special. They were real special. And there was some arboreal symposiums and I got a chance to talk to Trooper Walsh, uh, and meet with him and, and talk to him. Um, Tim Morris, uh, and, um, uh, Johnny blue, who, who, um, yeah. Mr. Blue, um, Mr. Blue, yeah. those guys, those guys were, you know, in my eyes, further along than i was in the husbandry techniques but um i was you know chasing as hard as i could to uh to capture their expertise and and uh they were great they were great what
1: um can what are you keeping now what's in your collection of pangolos
2: well you know i'm actually sitting in, in the Contra room i decided to to move into it um, you know, most of my stuff is, is what I've raised myself. Uh, Andrew Amon, and who lives in Austin along with Matt Morris and Eric Cook, we, yep. oh, I would say close to 10 years ago, we, we were budding up a lot and going, uh, alterna hunting in West Texas and, and, uh, green tree Python started to really, um, tickle our fancy. So I have some, um, Kind of my core is the Andrew Amon blue line um and uh um, then I picked up you know some odds and ends from matt morris um i I've got I guess one locality animal, a bac female uh it's not even a spectacular critter, but um I think she's gravid. We'll see how it goes. I've got a nest box in there now um I've got some outcrosses with the Kofa Island. I probably didn't pronounce that correctly. Um, <laughs> Sounds good to me. I, you know, John, I have as, probably as many total animals as John has um, with his juveniles and adults. So I have about 20, 20 green trees. And okay. uh, um, I try and hold back. Um, um, select individuals. I I I really liked y'all's comments earlier, um, buddy. About introductory chondros. You know we 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 right. work really hard at at um, um, and there's nothing wrong with it. with getting blue blacks, high yellows. You know, um, uh, multicolored critters. But you know I, I've since I'm getting close to retirement too. I I've been showing a little bit and. And there's a great deal of gratification of, of bringing in some some animals that are reasonably priced that are not uh, farm bred, and and, uh, and 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 I'm reluctant to people holding them as just pets, but I can I take them out and show them and say they're not a not aggressive critters, and and you know they can be reasonably priced. Uh, um, I think there's yep. you know with the farm bred bushmasters and others and such, you know. Uh, from Indonesia and such they can they can be problematic and put a bad taste in, in people's mouths, but you know I've got a lot of outcrosses, really you know um I like breeding blue lines to just about anything i you know i, I think that's the torture of 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 the unknown and and you know, if you could forecast what a maroon neonate is going to look like, um, you know, please tell me how. Um, the, the blue line bred with just about anything because chondros are so uh, unique, not only um, phenotypically, but, but genotypically, that you really don't know what you're going to get. And that's that's the funnest part about green trees is it seems like, you know, for the first three years, every three months, you have a new snake. so. Um, um, I, I don't sell that many. I think you guys. I'm 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 humbled by the number of animals you guys produced. Um, I I'm I'm not in that direction uh, at this point. I I may have three gravid females, but to be honest with you, I think my cycling was a little off this season. We had a September um a couple of really cold days in September and I think that threw off my um temperature cycling. Okay. So,
0: let's uh let's keep talking a little bit of husbandry, Ken. What about um t- tell us how you house your adults.
2: What I have right now, I'm looking at a, a bank of Vision 222s. Um okay. I have uh um panels on uh, on one side uh, pro heat panels, and uh, you know of course proportional um, thermostats for regulating them and and then I put in you know sometimes natural wood um, I find sometimes even if you if, you know if you saw something uh, outside that really fits well and you sterilize it well and then you bring it in you've got these um, um, beetle larvae that seem to eat the wood for years (laughs) afterwards and discharge little piles of sawdust. But uh, I'll use PVC uh, many times, the gray stuff. And, and I, I'm, you know, like, like maybe many others, you know, I've tried a lot of different types of cage setups, but sterilization and simplicity, um, with the consideration of having a a secure area for the green tree uh, is what I try and focus in on. So I use newspaper um, and and a water bowl, um, you know, of of equal size, and, and, and I try and spray the cages down depending on what season it is, you know, once every three days with an understanding that I desire to have the cage completely dried out after 24 hours. Um, okay. And and I and I, I'm coming a little bit more to the thinking. I'll be interested to see what John John uh, thinks on this. Is is air quality um, here in Texas? You know, we have a, a good number of months where it's it's very uh, mild, and so I I make an effort to open up the snake room windows and and then the door, and um, and and allow some real fresh air to come in. Uh, more than less uh, and, and I think that's that that's important um, I have no you know I have no data to back that up but but um, you know misting a lot in a stagnant cage, I think the air quality goes down even though you may be real right. um, but particular about cleaning, uh, which I think is real important, um, you know making sure fresh water you know comes, Chondros compared to colubrids, you know, I still think you need to to up your game uh, a couple notches um, compared to, you know, um, gray bands or something like that. You know, they're they're a lot more durable. But I use Vision 222s, uh, buddy, to answer your question. And then, you know, I use shoeboxes for everything up to juveniles. And I'm, you know, I find myself at times sometimes having to put females from, you know, I move them from shoeboxes to a vision cage, and they shut down for, you know, two months of not eating. And you can see they're stressed. Right. It's just too much. And, and there has been a few individuals I had to put back into a shoebox that was kind of dark in the back corner, get them online, and then, and then uh, reintroduce them to a larger cage as time goes by. So, um, you know, I'll use a rack system and vision two twos. Gotcha.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of keepers they 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 have similar experiences. I know I have where you, you know, you're ready to move an animal up, but maybe they're just not ready to go. So you have to, you know, sit, take a step back and uh, put them back where they were and let them become comfortable again and back on track. What about so uh, Ken? Do you do uh, your animals that are in tubs? Do you do you spray the animals in tubs as well?
2: Yeah, I I make an effort to spray the back end of the That has the bottom heat. Um, I actually have some larger racks. Um, I don't even know what you call these, but they're—I'm pulling them out. Probably a foot and a half by, well, maybe maybe 14 inches high. And I had those this rack system for juveniles, um, custom built. And uh, I really like them. I, I actually want another set. The visions are great for large females that uh, seem to uh, acclimate well to a glass front. And and when I introduce animals, I even got you know one still up. I'll I'll put newspaper over the front cage. There's not a lot of traffic in the ca- in the cage, but I still put newspaper up in the front and and and. Uh, um, just for seclusion, and, and now I'm on caffeine. and Maybe it's a good thing, but I got a quick story to tell <laughs> you about green trees and and photo period and seclusion. Sure. Uh, Chris Ryman with the Gila Ranch. When I was moving and building a home in 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 Bernie, um, I he was good enough to let me house his uh, my 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 colony, which included a good number of green trees. in in a room uh, in a shed in the back. And I'll I'll pick this up here. But I only visited that room due to it being kind of far away once a week. And as time went by, I found out some of my finicky green trees were feeding extremely well. And I had the lights on 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 a timer. And after about a month, I said, oh, my gosh, these things are just thriving. I mean, they're thriving more than I've ever experienced. And I realized I was turning the timer off, and they were almost in complete darkness except Mm. for light underneath the doorway. Mm. And I talked to Dave and Tracy Barker about it. I told this story. And they said, wow, Ken, they said, they gave me some information on, on how they believed a pinhole of light they can photo period off, and it wasn't, it, it, was, it was kind of a, a good thing. Now, I'm not recommending everyone keep their, you know, snakes in the dark with a little teeny bulb in the corner, but <laughs> I, I thought that was, that was fascinating that, you know, for close to a month, they were only photo, the only light was coming in during the daytime from uh, from the bottom uh, where there was a window uh, at the doorway, and they were they were they were doing
1: really well. Ken, um, let me. I, I hate to interrupt you, and in, uh, I'd like to interject. That's that's a, a very interesting observation because literally last week um, I had a very successful um, uh, berm and retic breeder visit my facility because he was interested in chondros. And, uh, his name is Ryan Sullivan. He's local to me. And in fact, he told me that a couple, several years ago, he started during the breeding season, uh, having no ambient light whatsoever day or night, um, in wow. his facility. And he noticed that his success rate in breeding, uh, was significant. So it's just interesting. You bring up that point. And I just literally heard the same thing a week ago from somebody that works with a completely different species.
2: Hmm. That is interesting, buddy. That really is. I think there's something maybe to it, but there's two independent observations. Um, I just might, they were thriving. I mean, the ones that ate every third time, no, they were eating two small rats that are sitting and, and, and their postures and behaviors were really keyed and, and it was in a, it was a, interesting. Yeah. Yeah,
0: that's that's very cool. Uh, I will tell you that I actually cycle my light in my snake room. Well, years ago I took all the interior lighting out of my condor cages and I saw a big change in my condors for the better. Um uh, very similar can. I didn't have condors that were as uh I guess they, they just started feeding more frequently. They were ready to – I don't know. They just seemed to be, I guess, uh, more relaxed when I took the lights out of the cages. When, they still get the ambient took, room when light. When you
2: took the, the cage lighting out, buddy?
0: Yes. They did, yep. they, they, did so they They just seemed to be – yeah, I think they are just more relaxed and very similar, I guess, to what they would get in the tub. They're still getting the ambient room light. And then um, I also uh, I went back to my the way I used to do things uh, – a very long time ago, where I had a uh a timer for the room lights that actually mimicked the the local day night cycles um, and so it, it, since it I've taken the lights out of think, my cages, yeah, it's kind
2: of a bigger issue, and I know you know we want some input from John, but we have to be sensitive as as uh captors of of this species is. Don't design the cage for what you think they want or what you would want. Right. You almost have to, you know, read them and say what, you know, uh, and I think Tracy Barker said it, you know, um, like there's a big key to take care of chondros and get them to breed. And I think simplicity and, and, and I am more of a simple, leave them alone. Than, than anything um, may be a key. And, and each person is different on their husbandry techniques. And I think where you live in the United States or the world for that matter can, can impact your successes and, and, and your successes uh, with breeding. But, um, but I always kind of keep that in the back of my mind, you know? You know, you know do they right. need an elevated yep. bowl Absolutely. to drink out of? Do they need a photo period? You know that that mimics, you know, Papua New Guinea. You know, I, I, I you know, observations are, are are important.
0: Agreed, agreed. All right, so let's uh, let's talk to John a little bit. Let's see how John does things. So, hey guys, so- John, you want to share? With, hey, would you like to share with us uh, how you're caging your chondros, adults and juvies, and neonates, all that fun stuff, give us the rundown, you know, cage setup, heating style, uh, substrate, perches, all that fun stuff. Yeah, sure. So,
3: yeah, and, man, what a great discussion you guys have been having. Um, And I'll chime in some thoughts about that, too. Um, So I keep my stuff – in tubs uh tub racks for all my neonates pretty standard uh six quart stuff the next size up now like i said my collection has gone through some ebbs and flows um through the years and um as i got more serious and i got older and got a nicer job and those kind of things um (laughs) i've bought some nicer stuff so i i have some cambro racks that i really really love and um You know, I just started to kind of get some stuff that just really made me really enjoy my collection. So I I step up from the neonate size tubs to the next size up in the the Cambro that you see people have a lot that's, uh, I don't know, a foot long or maybe it's 18 inches long by uh, 10 inches wide or something like that, maybe 9 or 10 inches tall. Um, And then I also have some adult Cambro racks that are the big 26-inch long tubs i think even um
1: yeah, yeah got i've a few got the, of those yeah yeah i do yep. uh, yeah i've kept i've kept animals i've bred females in those small females. yeah you can they're they're they're
3: a fantastic size um and everyone has made a, a rack around them you know animal uh plastics has designed a rack for me around them habitat systems has done it so you've got a lot of different you can get these custom pvc builders to to make them. And, sure. and now people like animal plastics has got the the dimensions on in stock so they can, they can pump them out. So, so that, and then up from there I keep uh chondros in the kind of on their side, rubber uh, rubbermaid tub with a face frame type style that Ben Evans popularized mm-hmm. about 10 or 12 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've gone one step further and he made his with a wooden face frame, very, very Maxwell like with the wooden face frame and the kind of jewelry, uh, cabinet sliding glass doors like you might see in a display case. But I've done mine with uh, PVC fronts on them and, and just made them like a woodworker would, but out of PVC. And and I, you know, searched high and wide and found these really dark charcoal gray Tupperware uh, Rubbermaids that would work well in black PVC and kind of, and I use acetron uh, plastic for my perches And Anyway, I just kind of went aesthetics on it. It's all black. So it's it's economy on one hand because I've used tubs, but I then treated myself with some kind of nice features that made them. They look pretty slick and, and then they're on a wooden frame and all that kind of stuff. So, so
1: that's how I keep them. And, um, You put, uh, I actually, use re- uh, John, uh, radiant heat panels inside those tubs, uh, the ones that you turn on the side. Yeah,
3: I do. And, 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 you know, and an interesting thing about my collection that's, Uh, different than a lot of people um, is I use center mount panels and I got that idea from both buddy and through buddy, but from Terry and
1: that
3: kind of thing. And and I've really, really liked that. And um,
1: so John, when you do that, you do not, so John, when you do that, you do not really establish much of a temperature gradient, right? I mean, you don't have like half of the tub at, at 85 and the other half at 75. You, generally have a tub that runs to you know 80 or 82 or whatever right that's
3: right yep
1: yeah, yeah
3: with a with the option to get a to get a little warmer under the panel so that's kind of yeah. you know phillips has really talked Terry has talked a lot about ambient temperatures and more steady temps and less gradients and things like that and so it just occurred to me one day that the chondros spend a lot of their time on the cool side of the cage and so you know I kind of yep. got the, some of this is from talking with Christian a lot about you know tuning to the cool side. A lot of people talk about I keep my snakes at you know eighty seven degrees and it's like, well, is that the thermostat setting, or is that the temp gun shot on the perch? Is that the animal's body temp on the underside, the top side, the wall temp what, what does these what do these numbers you talk about mean and um and so I talk a lot about thermodynamics and like understanding your caging and and understanding like the bottom row and the top row and the left side and the right side and the right and the side of the room that's over near the door and and you know and kind of just getting a, a grip on your cages and understanding when I change this it causes this and when I do this it causes that and 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 then the last I guess the last thing that buffers it all together is just the animal's tolerance or threshold for or um, sorry not, range of conditions of tolerable conditions and so obviously they have a range that they can stay in, but once you start getting things dialed in, they, they certainly do. I have found with consistent conditions because the animals are temperature dependent on essentially everything they do, if the more precise and consistent your conditions are, the more consistent and reliable their, their actions and behavior, especially when it comes to breeding, um, that's been my experience there. So, so I keep them with center mount panels and that, that gives me kind of 85 ish, um, in the center. And maybe eighty-one, eighty-two on the on the sides, and then I just provide some metabolic rest in the form of a night drop all year round. How far of a hey, night John?
2: drop? Yeah, sure. Go ahead, Ken. Yeah, real quick, John. That that's fascinating. Do you do you have any perches in your center mount uh, pro heat panels? Do you have any perches that are uh, in different heights? Or do, you, or do yeah. you? just Have one. Yeah. So they they do have a front perch that's
3: slightly lower. And it, but this kind of goes back to some additional thinking that I've done. That in in it goes back to I've seen so many snakes sit on the cold side of the cage, and it, it also been reading and learning about Gila monsters. I started to hear these stories about these Gila monsters that would they would get in their water bowls and soak to the point of detriment because you would think a Gila monster is from the desert, so it, it's a hot weather animal. Well, actually, it's pre-programmed in its brain to to avoid heat because it's from the desert. It, it's actually programmed in an area or in an environment that has so little access to water to take advantage of it whenever possible. And so I've just seen my chondros avoid heat, stay on the cool side. And so it occurred to me that um, some of them were, were thermoregulating as, as well as we hoped they would, and so my technique in my mind, I just call it kind of forced thermoregulation. You know, I, I don't – I give him some options, but I, I pick the temperature that he's going to be at the majority of the time. And so I've just arbitrarily chosen a temperature that I think chondro runs really good at. And Terry talks about these ambient temperatures of 80. Um, I think that they do benefit from a little bit of a ramp-up, and so, like I said, my cool side gets up to about 82 during the day, and I have about a 4-degree drop at night. So they drop down to about 78 at night, which gives okay. me an average daily temp of 80.
2: Yeah, And that's fine. And then they just have
3: the option to go get under the heat panel if they want, which, as we all know, they don't do that very often. So,
2: <laughs> Because I, I have found that, that green tree, especially adults and the visions, they will go to the cool side of the cage, and I try and correlate their temperament and acclimation and their, you know, how they're adjusting to, to, you know, to, to my husbandry techniques. And I, while some of the ones that I think are acclimated better do thermoregulate, but some of some of my adults do swing to the to the cool side of the cage. And I've had that thought of, wow, you know, um, are you hiding? Do you feel more secure there? While Maybe it's it's a little cooler than I really wish you to
3: have. Huh? Mm -hmm. And 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 back to that whole people say I keep my snakes at eighty seven or whatever they're you know, if you think about it, if the cage was ten feet wide, you could have the hot spot at two hundred degrees. Snake's not going to utilize it. It's only going to go over there to wherever it wants to go, as far as it wants to go. It's just not going to get any closer to the heat source. Than it needs to accomplish the task at hand. It's the cool side that he really lives. That's where he lives. And, um, and that's where he's clocking the most hours.
2: So that's why do I you,
3: concentrate mostly on that.
2: Do you find that your, your neonates and juveniles seem to thermoregulate on the perch in tubs better than a glass front?
3: Yeah, you know, I don't know what they're really doing. I haven't really observed or tried to kind of discern any pattern. I, I yes, I have some neonates that, you know, neonates sometimes will hang up, hang out the front of the tub, or sometimes they're at the back. It's kind of it seems random. Okay,
2: I, I, I seem in the tub setups, I, I, I tend to believe that they because it's a little darker, maybe, or or they feel more secure that they thermoregulate. A lot, uh, a lot more consistently. And if they're snugging mm. the front, I always say, "Well, maybe it's a little too hot." And I have seen, I believe, that they that you know, if I drop the temp, that they go to the very back and 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 adjust. But that's in more tubs than than glass fronts. Huh? Interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep.
1: Yes, yeah, so that, that's
3: kind cool. of some of the thinking that I, I apply to snakes and, and chondros in general um, and how I keep them um, and the temperatures that I use. Now, I I just thought about some other things. that I've had some notes here. So, like Ken, um, I do spray a little. I spray mostly in shed, um, and that's really maybe because I'm a little gun-shy. Um, in the summertime, I'm fine. I, my stuff does just fine. But you know what will happen is I will roll into winter, and I'm doing the best I can. Um, and I'll get a if I get a bad shed, then I'm a little gun shy to let the rest of the collection go through those couple of months of winter. And so as they approach shed, I'll start dumping some water out in the cage in the days leading up to that, and then spray them down real good the night or two before just to kind of lubricate things up and get it off of them in one shed, keep it moving. Um, but I probably could let go of that. Um, you know, old habits die hard. So I don't leave them certainly in, in wet, uh, muggy conditions. though They, they, they run dry. I, if you ask me overall, right. I run my collection really dry.
2: Right. And, and have you uh, used the technique? You know, there's been a lot of discussions on Facebook about rain chambers and such for defecation uh, events. And, um, you know, I, I I find out myself spraying, um, the, the individuals that, oh, I think they need to defecate. And, and, and I would say a certain percentage of the time I can, I can spray them down that day and that night they defecate. Uh, Um, do you experience that too? Yeah.
3: Oh yeah. 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 If I, I'll even do it if I've got, um, plans to change the water bowls the next day or the following day you know um, spraying them down and letting them get that out of the way is sometimes a good idea instead of changing all the water and then coming back the next day and realizing you get to change all the water again
2: Uh, yes
1: (laughs) i understand (laughs) very practical very practical
3: yeah, yeah, so I try I try to force it out of them and kind of manipulate right. them a little bit by spraying them to get that out of get the defecation out of the way and then I don't have to change the water as often. So that, that again, back to your point, Ken, that's me keeping them how I want it. That that's for my benefit. You know, so I don't know if they like
1: it or not, but whatever. <laughs> Guys, what about uh what about Very feeding? Good. Yeah, what about feeding? What, what, is your, uh, wh- what is your prey of choice and your frequency in your uh, babies to adults? Ken, why don't you go?
2: Well, um, gosh darn it, I remember many years ago there was a bunch of research done on, and I think Rico was involved with it. At least he communicated the message on how much better mice were nutritionally than, than uh, uh, rats. Uh, you know, per per weight, and and for adult uh, snakes, I um, I I I feed small rats to my to my adults. Um, that's that's the preferred, or or sometimes re, you know retired large mice. But you know, I still believe, and I and I don't know if I'm right that that the animals thrive off off rats more than more than mice. Uh, it may be a, a fat component. I, I, I don't know. But for adults, I'll feed small, small rats. And I would say the last 10 years, I've started to, to introduce uh, chicks. And mm, their defecation really? is a little different. And um, I have had a couple of them that once you introduce chicks to them, hot darn, That's that's (laughs) that's the only thing they want, and so that there is a (laughs) yeah, there is a downfall to that, Um, um, but that that's that's not the norm, Um, um, because what I usually do, uh, I'll use you know microwaved hot water, and then I'll pour it into a tub with my frozen rodents. Uh, not too hot, not to scold them, but you know what I mean for defrosting purposes. Sure. But I have chicks in there, too. So I always think, wow, well, all right, I'm feeding a small rat to this, you know, large female, but I bet it has some scent of a chick. And then and then sometimes I'll alternate. And, and it may be me, uh, again, that I think for, for you know, to address prolapses, and, and I really have been very, very fortunate of, of not having uh, – I think I've had like – like maybe three prolapses in, in my life. Um, uh, I, I think chicks add a little bit of uh, softness to the stool, um, mm-hmm. or, or maybe digestive properties where prolapses aren't apt to occur more um, for For juvies, pretty simple, you know, small mice usually i I usually don't buy fur pups, rats for that, and then um. Uh, I do want to mention the last five years, I guess. And Matt Morris brought this to it. My, you know, when I get a clutch of neonates, you know, uh, it can be rather um, frustrating. You know, on feeding trials, and and you know, you try with with warm pinkies. You know, at ten o'clock at night with the dim light, you know, tease feeding, and then the next round you you do the same thing but you use chick down. Well, I, I now just go straight to chick down. And then it seems uh, to be easy yeah. to wean them off chick down, and yes. uh, once they get on a roll, it's
1: a very it's a very uh, common recent theme. I think Ken, uh, I'm like you. I don't even try. I chick down immediately, and then I wean them off of it.
2: Good, yeah, yeah. That seems. Now there was a clutch. There was a clutch of snakes I had uh, of green trees that. I used frogs and I of course you know you introducing any any wild caught uh, animal um to to you know captive bred animals there's always a risk but um I I had some really good success with this one clutch that just would not take even the chick down um, with with uh, spring peepers and they'd bounce around that cage <laughs> and uh hot darn <laughs> This, this clutch really seemed to key so much more readily on, on live uh, little frogs than anything. But, but hopefully no one else has that experience.
1: <laughs> did they go on to um, establish on rodents?
2: Yes, they did. Because then yeah. I, I immediately froze um, the leftover fra- uh, peepers, and then I caught a couple of rain of pipians and uh, froze them and, and then added a little bit of water to the Ziploc and then defrosted that water, and I just, you know, rinsed off the pinky well and then dipped the heads in that in that frog scent, and from then on, it, it, you know, they took off. But it was an interesting observation, you know, um, that, you know, chick scent is, is really good. You know, why they trigger on chick scent, I really don't know. Um, I don't think there's small avian um, um, birds that they would be feeding on. Um, no, for sure,
1: for sure. You know,
2: I, I've always questioned that 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 logic uh, of why why they're triggering off chick down when they really wouldn't ever eat a bird when you know they're they're yeah. you know eight inches long. You know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very very interesting, isn't it?
2: There was a there was in symposium. And and uh, in St. Louis, where a speaker in the field, this is what he said. I'll just leave it at this. He found um, moth scales from the wings of the moth in a baby chondros uh, stool. I I thought that was fascinating.
1: Wait, wait, say that. Say that again. It ate a moth.
2: It it ate a moth. And defecated out a moth. Really? Uh, Yeah, I think this was. It was in 2008 or something. There was a there was a symposium, and maybe one day I can I can see if I can retrieve that. He wrote a paper on it, Uh, not not just on the moth defecation. It was just one of his observations in the field. You know. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Wow. Oh, maybe we need to start um, uh, breeding moths. Breeding moths. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah. John, um, what about you? What 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 are, what are your feeding techniques or habits? Um, I mostly feed
3: mice, but I'm certainly not opposed to anything. I I, I think you know people get into this mice versus rats thing, but um, it's just uh, you have to make adjustments and read your animals. I mean. I I will say that I'm keeping animals smaller than I, than I used to. And I I think the entire hobby is keeping animals probably smaller than they were uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, But that's not to say that you couldn't keep them with rats. And I'll, the example I'll give is so another thing is kind of like people are keeping their snakes smaller than they used to. Another really common occurrence in the reptile industry right now is buying feeders that are undersized all the time. And so, you know, you you buy male water mice, and if you you know if you buy jumbos, you actually get a bag of about half jumbos and some adults.
1: And, yep. you know. yeah, and, yeah, and,
3: yep. and so that I have just really simplified things. And again, these animals have a range of acceptable prey size, and and so I, I don't buy uh, twenty different gradients of uh, of mice you know i i jump from about hoppers or maybe small mice and then i just buy you know 10 packs or what you know in in a very large block of jumbos all at one time and i just sit down with them and sort i run open up four or five bags at one time and run sort and i feed the small ones to the smaller stuff and the big ones to the bigger stuff and and so on and so you know like my males for example. Um, I feed them about once a month, you know, and I just feed them the about the largest prey item I can find in the bag, and um, and I feed them about once a month, and I just keep them lean, and so they eat about 12 or 15 times a year. Um, now, on the other hand, I'm not I'm not one of these guys that's keeping snakes really, really ultra small. It seems to be a, a trend now, you know, people almost encouraging each other to keep them about as small as they possibly can, and you. Know, there's horror stories about people getting a yearling from someone and it's 40 grams or, and, and it, some of this is just because of, you know, we're humans in this game, you know, and so customers don't want to receive a 40 gram yearling and I don't care how much you explain sure. it to them. They just don't want to. Um, right. And, and then also for as far as captive reproduction. Yeah. I mean, you can read all these papers you want, but these things, Males are 225 grams and females are 450 grams, but they breed really nicely at 700 to 800 grams. I mean, a female just, you know, I, I, I want to produce uh, green tree pythons. And so, so no, I'm not keeping 2,000-gram females, but I'm also not keeping 500-gram females either. Um, I feed my stuff uh, somewhere into that, you know, 700 eight hundred, I think probably my biggest female in my collection right now is under nine hundred grams, but some people would claim that she's a you know, an enormous animal in comparison to a wild type. So um yeah. that, that's kind of what
1: I do. Yep. Well John I, I think, think there's also, almost I, I, I was gonna say I think there's almost been an overcorrection um with people feeding their green trees. Uh you know, I think we went through a period where people were you know, maybe overfeeding, and I think we've almost swung around to where, um, you know, I think people might be underfeeding, and you know, you, you look at back at back at Greg, Greg Maxwell, he would feed his breeder females medium rats. You know, that was his consistent. You know, a medium rat, that's a massive meal. Um, yeah. But
3: they would recommend a three-year-old female in 1,000 grams. I don't even know how that's possible.
1: I know. I mean, but having said that, he was producing, you know, he was producing animals. um, And those females were laying eggs. And so I do think that, you know, people that have gone to a strictly all-mouse diet and, um, you know, I feel primarily probably 80% mice um I do feed small rats to my larger females I you know I mix them up but when I feed them a jumbo mouse I'll feed them two easily you know they they'll take down two of them uh, particularly when I'm getting ready to um cycle them into, into a breeding uh you know to a breeding mode so I I, I think we got to be careful that we don't go too far in the opposite direction and, and underfeed primarily female, uh, uh, chondros, because I think you can get stuck in this, in this two and three year period where if you underfeed them, they're going to be, they're going to end up as very small females. And then you mm-hmm. know, they may not, they may not be productive as adults. Well,
3: you know, that, that actually brings up a great point. Um, and, and like you said, I, I'm I'm not about overfeeding a snake, and I'm not about obesity. But I am. This is captive husbandry, so citing examples of wild-type chondros size doesn't do a lot for no, me. I'm trying to no, maintain a captive no, collection, nor, nor but I. absolutely. But nor what I, I was going to say was these these I have determined, and this is just from receiving some snakes that are small and seeing it happen these snakes have growth milestones that have to be achieved by certain ages or it That's forever right. changes right. their trajectory. That's right. And if you give someone a snake, and I, I've i seen it, you know, in 250 grams at five years old or 300 grams at five years old and it's a female, that snake is going to have and, – and then when you start to try to crank up the meals and put a little weight on it, she clogs up because of intake. And so when they Absolutely. are young – they are rolling and they are growing. And even if you don't want to grow them to that eventual size, you can always pull back on the stick later and stop them at 700 or 600 or whatever. But they, they need to be, and I don't mean crazy, but they need to be growing when they're youngsters. They need to be coming on along and hitting these things. And then the future owner can choose whether he wants to change that trajectory or not. But if you deliver the animal, at 35 or 45 grams at 15 months old, you may have changed that animal's um, size and reproductive, everything about that animal for the rest of its life.
1: I I couldn't agree more. And and I would love to hear Buddy, you know, of of all of us, uh, Buddy has probably (laughs) produced uh, more, you know, animals and have brought more juvenile animals along in feeding. So I, I would love to hear his, his input on this. Yeah. Well, you're talking to the guy who used to feed everything rats. Um,
0: just because that's what I did. And, I uh, never had any of those problems. Everyone talked, you know, talked about that they had with rats. Um, but I did, you know, I do only feed mice right now. And I agree with John. I, I used to have a mouse vendor that could provide me with a jumbo mouse. And, um, the jumbo mice that I get from him now are are not nearly as big as they were four or five years ago. Um, and so I, I do agree that, you know, definitely, you know, the, the size of the feeder rodents are going down. I'm not sure if that's crossed the, the board or if that's just, you know, he's just telling me these, what the, these are what these are and, and charging me the same price when they're really not the jumbo mice anymore. Um, But I will say that, um, you know, I came, I kind of came of age in an era where, you know, you, you fed baby pythons in general, you know, every three to five days, um, you know, you were, and you were breeding different pythons, you know, males at 18 months or two years of age. So I lived through that, you know, get them up fast and get them going type thing. Um, I used to feed baby condors very frequently, three to five days was kind of what I did. Um. I just noticed that uh, they fed and they they definitely grew really well. Um, But I also noticed that oftentimes they just didn't have that feeding response that I wanted from them. So I just started pushing the time out. So now from, you know, for me, young chondros, even, you know, neonates, you know, once a week is what they're getting, Um, sometimes every 10 days. But I've noticed that um, they tend to start feeding, you know, feeding aggressively sooner than they were in the past and I, fr- you know, we feed them more frequently. Males, I'm kind of the same way as John, you know, 12 to 20 meals a year, you know, small, small mice, small adult mice. Um, females, you know, jumbos, sometimes every, you know, sometimes I'm in a and I'll do it weekly. Sometimes I do it every 10 days and, you know, sometimes I'm like, God, if like you know, clean out snake cages or, but know I'm going to be out of town. I want to reduce the load for the folks that are coming in and do the husbandry for me. I, you know, I may skip a, a couple of weeks. So I'm pretty much all of the board with feeding frequency. Um, I will say, you know, I pretty much agree with all of the, all the size things about what John had said. I think, you know, 700, 800 gram females are perfect. I've had females that never really got much bigger than 600 grams. Um, and, you know, I waited until they're, you know, five years of age before I actually tried to the breed them for the first time. But, you know, I realized I could definitely make this snake way more, but I don't know if it would actually uh, increase the quality of life or the quality of the uh, animal she may produce in the long run. I I, they're def- I agree. There definitely are milestones. Um, I think a lot of people are, are, are very, uh very cautious with feeding in regards to preventing prolapses. Um, sure, I know. We'll, you know, uh, if you ever talk to Tim Morris, um, you know the things they did back in the the old chondro days were um, they never fed three. If a snake didn't eat after the third time, uh, I'm sorry, defecate after the third feeding, they didn't just didn't feed it anymore. They waited until it defecated. You know, sometimes that can be a long time for a chondro. Um, so. And I think there's a lot of, you know, give and take in there and people being wary that, you know, they don't want to have prolapsed animals. They'd rather have a little bit smaller. You know, it's all over the board. I won't say, you know, someone's someone's way of doing it's right and that way is wrong. Um, you know, we've kind of changed things um, as as we've moved forward. Uh, you know, they definitely, I don't think they need to eat as much as they do, in the you know, as, as some people feed them. You are know, definitely getting better meal quality. Um, and I think uh, I tell you definitely one thing is talking to Ian to sell is that, uh, you know, the stuff that they, the food that the rodents eat is designed to grow rodents, not provide good nutrition to snakes. So that's, a, that's oh. an interesting uh, topic that Ian has told me in the past. It always sticks in my mind. Um, oh. And I've often thought about, you know, should you know should we vary up their their diet a little bit but i'm always fearful about you know doing the chick thing or you know going back to rats and stuff like that i thought about doing african soft furs, um but i just i just never i've never done them because every time i i try to to at least pull the trigger to try some of them they're just no, none are available so for me it's going to be you know, just rodents for now i get i mean
1: feeder mice for now as far as rodent prey for my animals So buddy, um, you said you, you know, your mainstay was for, for a long time, you fed rats. So why did you switch? Did you have a personal experience, a bad experience feeding rats, or you just listened to a bunch of other people that decided mice were a preferred meal?
0: Um, yeah, no, no bad experiences. You know, I didn't have prolapses and I had some really big females. That's for sure. Um, and it was just a habit that I learned with breeding other species of Python. As soon as they could, were big enough to take a, you know, a rat fuzzy. Um, you just, you just roll rats right into them. And, um, my animals are definitely, uh, the first several clutches I had. If you were were to compare yearling sizes, I mean, my animals were definitely, you know, way, you know, much bigger. Some people like, you know, would, would think they were maybe even two years of age. So, um, and just talking to Rico and seeing, you know, all the success he had had with just using a, a mouse diet, um, you know, he was just kind of saying, I think it's a better, it's better for your animal. He told me why he thought it was. And so I I, I did, I just started doing it. And um, I, you know, I definitely say that I don't get clutch sizes the way I used to. I used to, you know, above 20 was pretty common. Um, and now, you know, between 12 to 18 is what I, what I get right now. And I'm sure it has to do with the frequency and, and the, uh, the prey size that the animals are eating and the females are smaller in general.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's good stuff. And if it's better for the, uh, for the female, for their longevity, I mean, absolutely. It's a no brainer, you know, keep them small, feed them, feed them less. Um, I, I just have this feeling um, that and I've looked at some of the sizes of some animals that people have posted in the last couple of years. Um and uh I agree with John. I think that some people are getting behind the growth curve on these animals and you know, it's it's a balance. You you don't want to go too far too extreme. Yep. And that tends to be how
0: we do things in life anyway you know, we go from one hip, we, we, we always like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I do everything in moderation. But if you look at a lot of what we do, we tend to do things in extremes. Um, and it's those, you know, when we look back on things, you know, you were always happiest when you were in the middle of those extremes and not maybe realized it, but I think it's a human nature sometimes to, to say, yeah. you know, if I can, if this is, if this works then more is better, or if. You know, if I'm doing a little bit less and a little bit less is better, I'm going to do even more, Make it, you know, yeah, do exactly. even
1: right. less. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, and, it's one of those think, things to kind of go back and forth with. And I think we get caught in the trap that uh, John described very well of it's it's important to bring um, what happens in the wild to these animals into our practice, but realize at the same time, it's not the same. You know, we're not. It's, it's very unrealistic. Par- it's, it's unrealistic. We're not dealing with parasite ridden, you know, uh, animals, hopefully, you know, in captivity. Um, they, they're different animals.
0: different
1: animals. So, you know, we got to yep. just keep that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, um, I can't believe that this has already been 90 minutes into into a into a two hour show. So let's, let's move on because I, you know, I literally have had more breeding questions in the last two weeks than I can ever remember. So we've got to get into some breeding techniques. Um, So do it again. Let's start with Ken. Uh, Ken, why don't you kind of lay out some of your thoughts about uh, just breeding in general? Uh, You've, you've looked at the outline, you know, the questions we want to hear about when females are ready, you know how you cycle feed if you do. Do you temperature cycle? All that kind of stuff. Uh, Ken, why don't you why don't you start tell the readers how how you prepare to breed chondros.
2: But it, it may be more simple than than complex. Good. Um. Uh, you know when when I anticipate the temperature, the ambient outside temperature to drop. Uh, I'll crack the window and I'll adjust the proportional thermostats. Um, daytime, I'll I'll drop it like three, three degrees, and then have a nighttime drop a little bit more than what they had during the summer. Sometimes five, six, seven, eight um, uh, degrees drop, um, and I find myself wanting to mist a little bit more understanding I, I do want the cages to dry out quicker than than uh longer and um no real science I mean I do that for like two three weeks and then I start introducing males during the day on a branch um of course i you know i I do it during the day i I have had one um there's, it seems like I just got stories, you know,
3: uh,
2: you know, where a male um,
1: actually killed
2: <laughs> killed a female uh, overnight. Okay. Uh, in, uh, in,
1: yeah, in yeah, you school. do not you do not want to introduce these animals during the night, right? You want to introduce them during the day, right? I introduced them during the day,
2: but that night, okay. something. And this was a this was a a, a wild caught pair. And the female was a lot bigger, and, and he just must have just struck her and then actually strangled her. Um, Holy
1: cow. And,
2: uh, yeah, it was a terrible occurrence. But th- that's, that's an anomaly of decades. Sure. It was just a terrible observation, uh, which I haven't experienced uh, ever except that once. Um, um, and then I usually put a newspaper over the cage, and then yes, yeah, you mentioned that. There. yeah, I you peek mentioned in that. there, and see, see what they're doing, even though the snake room doesn't get much traffic at all, um, but I think a a more subdued, a darker environment uh, may help. maybe it's maybe I do it just for myself. I don't know, um but what I don't want them to do at any time is is to be uh to strike out like some of the BAC types um seem to be a little bit nippier. So uh, if I have a pair together, um, I don't want them, uh, uh, you know, if I come up to the cage without newspaper, they may trigger to me, and then its 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 mate uh, may move, and I haven't had this happen, but I'm just scared to death that it may, may strike out to that movement. Um, um, so I'll introduce them, and as, as the years go by, I do leave them together you know, it used to be just for one night. Um, and then the next day I would, I would take them out, but I'm leaving together now for two or three days and then break them and then reintroduce them, uh, two or three days later. Uh, if copulation is observed, um, um, of course, I just leave the newspaper up and and let them tangle up and, and take some pictures for documentation of, of when this occurred. Um, and then when they separate on the perch over a period of time, I'll I'll uh, I'll break them. And even though they copulated, I'll I'll reintroduce them again. But you you can kind of tell when they're just they're done, um, they're done with each other, and um, and then you know with ovulation and, and follicle development, you know um, sometimes I've completely missed it. Completely missed it. I've, many times I've completely missed it. You know.
1: Um, well well and, ken uh, will you tend will, will, will you tend to alter your feeding habits uh you know before you decide you know you want to breed a female will you will you feed her up so to speak um or you know or or not
2: well it kind of comes back
1: to different feeding
2: techniques y'all's conversations were fascinating and and buddy it does seem like you and me may have came from the old school, and maybe it's a Kluberd frame of mind, uh, where you know, let's get them big, let's get these females big. I have, I had some big OS high yellows that were just monsters in their own right. I mean, these things, you know, I can't give you the gram uh, weight, but but they were they were huge <laughs> animals, big, big girls, uh, yeah, big girls, real big girls. Um, so yes, I do. Uh, I guess the evolution of my feeding <laughs> is I, if they don't eat, I'm okay. I'm okay with it. I actually had one snake, and, and you're going to roll your eyes, 13 months, a male, wild caught, did not eat. It, then it gorged itself for three, four months. Every four days <laughs> I fed it, then it stopped. Yeah. Then it stopped for another yeah. six months. So yeah. it, it really is a great sense of peace to say, oh, you're not going to eat. Well, that's just fine. And, of course, males seem to be uh, not uh, 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 frequent feeders as as females. Um, And I do feed the females during the the fall portion before I anticipate um, um, fall coming uh, where where cycling will occur, or or at least I offer them. And they usually take the the, the big females, especially if they lay the clutch the following year, um, um, I try and fatten them up and and, and get – a little bit more weight on them, right? And but you know you can tell that they're you know they'll swell up, head will flatten a little bit, colors will change, and then they'll stop feeding. And uh,
1: that's and a really know, that's a really good that's a really yeah that's a really good sign, right? When you have a, a female that's just ravenous, and then right. all of a sudden she turns picky, and then she just doesn't want to eat. Then you're like, oh yeah, this this is good stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah and and i have noticed a little flat head um but i don't think that occurs with every female um uh, if she's a uh, gravid um but but i but i i i think i can you know you see a lot of rib showing but she's huge and you go oh well she's she's pulling her you know fat reserves and energy reserves for egg egg uh, development and so on yeah. so that so, so that's,
1: that's that's kind of the way i do it Cool, awesome. Uh, nice. John, what about you?
2: Yeah, so <clears throat>
3: I keep them – I breed them a lot like Ken does. Um, one thing he was talking about, you know, he puts them together and then pulls them apart. You know, it, it's not that way every time, but something that I've um, tried – I had a female – it's actually my female striptease. I tried her in the fall, and she didn't get grabbed. and I tried her this way and that way. So I decided in my mind, I said, you know what, I'm going – this is not how I do it all the time, but it made me think of a new technique. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to put the mail in there um, for one week, once per month, forever,
1: until <laughs> right. I get her. Yeah. You know, I, I'm yeah. going That's to keep talking about it. <laughs> yes. Yes.
3: And I just know these things have enough sperm retention that it, it's going to get her, you know. And then once I start seeing things develop and kind of start to cook, you know, then I'll, I'll, um, change it up. And so anyway, I got her granted that time and it it made me realize, man, I was like, I just was able to keep the stress down because, you know, they spent a lot of time actually not together. And so I bred them and it just made me think about, you know, you can breed these things where out of a month, you know, they might have, because we all know that the best copulations and the most aggressive breeding is right there that first few days and then it kind of tapers. And so, yeah. You know, they might. Yeah. You might first read them three first days few hours and
1: then off, the first few hours right. sometimes, right? A lot so of you times, might you might read them that for two or three end. days. Right.
3: Yep. 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 And then a week or ten days off, and so over the course of the month, I might introduce them three times: three days, ten days off, three days, ten days off, three days, something like that, and total up to a little over a month or something. And they spent the vast majority of their time actually not even together. But the time that they spent together, they spent locked up. And so that's been some thinking I've been doing. And then the other area that I, uh, in addition to some light cycle, you know, I cycle my lights along with the the temperature and, and some things like that. And if I'm not getting any action, sometimes I'll cut the light cycle down from 12-12 to 11-13 um, and just really shorten that day down. Um, see if I can just get them to kick over and and go on into development. Um, and that has seemed well, I don't you know, I don't know if they would have otherwise, but it it has seemed anecdotally to to work. Um, but the other area that I'm really uh, doing a lot of thinking around is around food ramping or food cycling. Um, and you hear people talking about it online and and you you've even I think in that um, Terry Phillip book, they had a chart. I think David Brahms mapped that chart out on a graph. And it showed Rico's technique, and he was ramping the animal up, and these, it all coincides with shed cycles and temperature cycling, and you can almost kind of like just imagine what he was doing, you know, like all right, well there right there he's starting to cycle, here comes a shed, you see the follicle development that he got from the from the um, uh, not sonograph but um, ultrasound,
1: ultrasound. And, you know yep. and it all,
3: there it is, you know, so it's it's really cool. Um, and so I've been thinking about food ramping. And the one point I want to make about food ramping is, let's say you've got a female that's three or four years old, and you plan to breed her the following year. It kind of goes back to that underfed thing. If she's and you're just you got the pedal down, and you are just slamming toward whatever your target is. Like I want her to be this size by five years old, and that's going to land right there in the fall, and you know November is going to be there, October or whatever, and I'm going to breed her. Well, if you've got the pedal down all the way to then, you can't ramp her up. And so because she's just all the way ramped up, and so she can't feel the in this case not environmental stimuli, but she can't feel the 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 difference in her food intake. And so in order to do that, she actually needs to be You hear this all the time. You hear people say, "I'm going to get a few more meals in them." You know, before breeding. Well, if that female is a hundred grams shy, or two hundred grams shy, or whatever of your of your target, whatever you your human brain thinks she ought to be, three or four extra meals prior to breeding is not going to get her that weight. She's actually not going to gain after she she might look fat and thick-tailed, but that's just poop and food. And after she defecates, <laughs> she probably's only gained six or eight grams, or you know something total. But what you have done This triggered this thing in her, and she goes ahead and gets gravid, and you attribute it to, like, yep, put the meals in her, and and, uh, she got gravid. But, you know, it goes to show you that these things can probably breed with a lot less fat reserves on them than you you think, because here's a female going into breeding a couple hundred grams light, and you thought you were going to put it on her in the last month, and what you actually did was just food ramp her, and what you were doing prior to food ramping her was fasting her with your underfeeding, and get you know right. here's the picture I'm right. painting, but yep. but so you can you can observe these things and use it to your advantage. But what that means is she has to be of what it, again your target doesn't matter. You're you're just you're the one in the driver's seat. You're the adult, uh, the uh, human, and so <laughs> she just needs to be there in the spring. And so um, now after an animal seven eight nine ten years old and she's a really really mature female. But if you're trying to breed a female in that first season. Whatever you want her to be in the fall, she needs to really be there in the spring with no attempt of trying to race toward that finish line. That way you can actually pull back on the stick right prior to going into breeding and lighten up those meals. And again, then you go back to that technique we were just talking about, a few extra quick hitting meals, you know, bam, 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 back to back, you know, once a week or, you know, feed her once and then feed her five days later and then pair them up, those kinds of things. Um, seem to kick them into gear, and and that alongside coinciding with um, those real nice sharp temp drops and some light changes and and maybe some barometric pressure changes outside, and, and it, it seems to kick them on into gear. At least that's been my experience.
1: Yeah, I I, I like that. I, I mean, I I like your answer exactly. Um, yeah, you know, I mean that's pretty much what I do. I I I I get them ready year round, so when it's time um, you know, I can, I can offer smaller meals less frequently and I don't have to worry about them being, you know, of appropriate size or fat reserves.
3: Right. And you have to put, you know, when you, and then you, and that goes back to that feeding thing. Some people, what, what is overfeeding, right? Is overfeeding, some might say that me feeding my animals nice and steady and kind of heavy from the get go and them coming up to size nice and they might say, well, that's overfeeding them because I've got a 100-gram yearling. But my animal gradually achieved breeding size versus this kind of showing up to the party a little bit late and your animal's a little undersized, and then you in a mad dash try to ram food in the animal in that last year. And to me, that's overfeeding, and that's stressing the system. And that animal, um, you know, and you're you're trying to get these last-minute meals in it and clogging them up. And And so anyway, there you go. It all kind of it all ties together.
1: So yeah, and it, it, you know, it's it goes back to the theme of it's a balance, right? I mean, no. it, it, it's a balance. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Yep. And definitely. then other than that, I mean, I saw on your list here, you know, about you know, I removed perches and I soak my females a little bit before they lay and, and that kind of thing. So There's some other stuff, but that, but I thought that was a good. You know, other than some of the well. Some of that other you know, structural you, stuff, that was how I breed snakes.
1: Yeah, you know, before you before you deal with them after they're gravid, you have to get them gravid. And so I think, you know, you and Ken have talked and Buddy have talked about some, some great points. And, you know, I mean, gosh, all, all these animals are different, and they're going to respond differently. You have to know your animals, but you guys have done just a, a great job of, I, I think – overlaying the basics you know you can't You, John, Ken, buddy you guys cannot be there you know with our listeners with their females right but you guys have done right. a great job about just kind of laying down the, the framework about things to look for and things to prepare and so I mean I think that's totally on point So so let's Let's. Talk. Uh, I was just. Yeah. yeah going To say, all right, so let's let's say we get lucky, you know, and and your females gravid, or you think she's gravid, and so John, you're talking about, you know, some of these things that you do afterwards. Um, there was a recent post on Facebook, uh, a poll, you know, do you soak your gravid females? And all I think I, every person I saw said that yes, they did, except for Gary. Because he had a bad outcome, I think he soaked a gravid female that prolapsed. So, you know, how important is it? Do you think it is to soak a female once she's ovulated? Ken, why don't you um, go ahead? Yeah, go ahead, Ken.
2: Well, gosh, guys, um, I never have.
1: Uh, okay, well, there uh, we go. There's two. Uh, vo- there's two votes. <laughs> and
2: and. <laughs> I'll be interested to see, to listen to to y'all's response for the people who do. Um, the only time I when it talk when we talk about uh, gestation and, and, and uh, production of eggs, do I soak a female is, um, is primarily when I when I um, use an incubator and I pull the eggs from her and uh, I want to get that scent off her and I want to hydrate her. I will and she's thin and 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 uh and I want to get her uh um, the scent off them and 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 I usually put you know warm water uh for a few hours and that's it that's that's after she lays after I've taken the eggs from her uh, a a pre soaking um gosh i i i i would i I wouldn't want to do that that would be my gut feeling is to pull her off the branch. And disrupt her from thermoregulating and, and the development of eggs. That's just my thought. Maybe it's old school. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there's a great deal of advantage of soaking a gravid female prior to egg deposit. But no, that's that's my thought. <laughs> John, do you do you soak do you soak your your gravid females prior to uh, egg dropping?
3: Yeah, I have in and it may be one of those things about you know i've you know i I got the idea from someone else um it went well, and then you you kind of get into that stage, you know, especially me. I don't have but a clutch or two per season these days um in my current conditions, and you know it's kind of one of those things i'm not, I don't want to find out otherwise, and so I just end up doing it, but maybe they'll <laughs> I'm sure they would go okay without um but there is no doubt that. You know, they get kind of zoned in on um, basking and, and um, the egg development. And um, and there's no doubt that when I've soaked them that I've seen them drink. And so, I don't know, that's just, um, it's worked out for me. So, yeah, I do, a little. One, I, these days, I don't do it so often. I do it about a week before shed. And, again, that's just because I dare not want to have a stuck shed. And I just, I get a little nervous. You know, snakes are still, uh uh magical to me and I get a little nervous right there as we get toward the finish line. And and so, and then I do it about a week after uh, the shed. And, um, you know, but after that, I'm, you know, I'm also kind of, kind of crude in the fact that I see all these people and they, and they have snakes lay eggs in the water bowl or from the perch. I mean, once I get within range, when I think the eggs are coming, all those things just, I take all the water bowl and the perch out there. There is no, Uh, laying from the perch and so yeah i soak them and about after that second soak um i start pulling all that stuff
2: out and shut them down i do make an effort john you know at at one point to pull the perches uh and especially when i see her cruising pre-lay you know Um, you you can see she's kind of finding that, you know, 86 degree, you know, nest box, you know, and, 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 you know, and the nightmare is that she, she lays from the perch or she drops them in the water. And so uh, I, I I pull all that stuff too.
1: Yeah. Well, buddy, I I know you're a pre-lay soaker because you taught me that. So why don't you – why why do we do that? That, (laughs) That's a great question. (laughs) Um, I am kind of like John
0: because, uh, well, I've also had times where I've never done it, and it's turned out well. But I've seen a lot of people have heartache because they are nearing the end, and um, the females become egg-bound and uh they have to have, you know, some type of veterinary uh care to get the eggs out and normally the the thinking is the animal wasn't, you know, hydrated enough and wasn't able to move the eggs down and we you know don't really know if that's the actual case or not, but um you know, you often emulate people that are successful and and uh somebody who's been very successful pretty chondros is a mutual friend of ours is Christian Stewart and you know just seeing how he does things um and you you know one of the things as a snake keeper at least um I've always done is I always try to speak, try to see what other successful people are doing and and what's you know what are they doing maybe differently than than I am um, and so just talking to Christian um his thoughts about you know you know, gravid females, as John had kind of mentioned, seem to seem to be pretty stationary, much more so than any other time um, of their, I guess, existence. And uh, you often worry, you know, are they getting down to the water bowl enough? So I, I definitely soak them um, and knock wood. It's always worked out well for me. And so until I have that bad experience, I probably will continue to do so. Um, like I mentioned before, you know. I do a few hours. I don't leave them in there like a whole day or anything like that. It's just uh, enough to make sure that they're actually, you know, drinking water and and taking in stuff. Um, And another area that I've actually kind of changed, too, is that, uh, you know, I've kind of went the gamut with nest boxes. I went with the old wooden-style nest boxes years ago, and then I kind of was like, well, this is, you know, I, I can't make anything square with wood anyway. So I, I utilized plastic buckets and Rubbermaid tubs. And then uh, Christian Stewart was here a few years ago. And um, we were, I can't remember why we were talking about nest boxes, but he, he was like, I wouldn't even put your uh, nest box in with your chondros. You've got this great rack system here. He's like, I would just take that gravid female and, you know, when you think she's about ready to lay, I would just put her in, in these uh, those tubs in that rack system, and that's your nest box, and you don't ever have to worry about her scattering eggs. I pull perches anyway, so I don't worry about them, you know, dropping from the perch. Um, and, you know, I leave a, you a know, very eye. small water yeah. source in there. So <laughs> that's, that's what good I do. That has been working what really I... well for me.
3: Yeah, that, that's what
0: I do. I figured you whatever. did, John. Yeah, so yeah, you know, I, I rack, just one of those. My things. rack was all full this year. <laughs> <laughs> just,
2: no, just let it I, I, out the right house. John, con- It'll be okay. I'm going to highly consider that strategy. I mean, it's a smaller quarters. It's probably yeah. in a dark area. You can thermoregulate it perfectly. You can keep it dry, and uh, gosh, there'll be no mistakes. Kind of. Reduces your the risk of stuff.
0: Right, exactly.
3: Yeah, uh, those you know, large Cambro racks I have, I just, I just toss them in there with some towels and and um, I I lay one towel nice and flat and taut against the floor, and then the other one I just toss in there, kind of fluffed up in a crumbled up ball, and they normally just get under that towel and uh, curl yeah. up in a little beehive and sit still.
1: Buddy, I, I would um I'd like to add on to your um comments about the soaking and I agree hundred percent that you know I try to emulate what has worked well for others. I try to learn from their successes and their mistakes. But I will just say on top of that, I have never seen a gravid female that's ovulated leave the heat source. They're on it hundred percent of the time day and night, and I don't think they're leaving it to drink. So if I force them, you know, to to drink or at least to have exposure to water by soaking them, um, you know, a few times before they lay, I, you know, again, like you, maybe I just feel better about myself because I think that's what they need. Um, But that's why I do it, plus because you told me to. Makes sense. (laughs) <laughs> and someone <laughs> told me. <laughs> Good stuff. Definitely, yes. All right, guys. We're winding down. We've got one other thing to discuss on our agenda, and that's hatchling husbandry. So... Ken, let's start with you, buddy. I mean, what do you do when they come out of the egg?
2: Well, I first want to caveat all with it seems like every clutch is different, especially when you're mixing island forms. The aggressiveness of the neonates, when I see a neonate strike out shortly after hatching, I kind of clap inside of my mind saying, excellent, then this would be (laughs) an easy clutch to feed. Um, yeah. <laughs> some clutches never strike out and they fly out of the cages and you go, Oh my, this is going to be yeah. a challenge. So, the runners. you know, it's kind of, it's kind of like, I do believe you guys have, you know, a lot more diverse experience than I do. Um, uh, but, um, it seems like, you know, if, if they strike out, um, uh, you know shortly after perching um, that that's that's such a blessing and and everything works real well um, I'll some people wait for the first shed and and I have most of the time I will I will leave them alone keep them moist make sure they're hydrated by spraying them and letting you know, and actually, I'll I'll keep it moister than I would any other uh, stages, and I need to hurry up. It's almost ten o'clock.
1: So, at you know, I I'll spray <laughs> no, no, them. No, hey, Ken, don't worry. We the show the, the show will run an extra hour over the live time. So you're, oh, we're all okay. we're all good. Yeah, no, we're all good.
2: Okay. Well, this isn't a uh, uh, a long process for neonate feeding, but I will I will make sure the cage. Um, I'll wait for the first shed. I'll make sure they're hydrated by spraying their coils. Um, I think this is where good airflow is important through the room uh, to make sure no fungal or, or or anything of of that nature occurs. And then um, it seems like almost the later, the better. I've been up till the wee hours of the morning. Tea seating. Um and again, some clutches, you know, you can see during the day. You really, literally, you can touch their necks with a warm pinky uh, during the day, and they're just twisting right. around. Yeah. And then, you know, you just you, you you tease, tease, and then put them right up to their heat sensory pits and whack, coil, drop next next one. Um, but but on the norm, you're going to have to work with them a little bit. That's that's my experience, and that would be uh, warm pinkies. After first shed and uh, probably at about 10 o'clock at night, let, let them have a couple hours of, of complete darkness. And, what uh, and I have the, adopted uh, the chick scent
1: was, uh, now. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. So you, you're, you're a big proponent of that, the chick scenting.
2: Yeah, and I only use those little frogs because those those babies were runners they literally were runners and the whole clutch were, 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 primarily runners. You know, you, you teased them, you touched them and they weren't ready to defend themselves. They, they, they were out, out, you know, they were out
1: of the tub. <laughs> right. Right. John, what well, about you?
2: About- well, yeah. So uh,
3: very much like Ken, I mean, they're all individuals for me, but, um, and I've done it both ways. Um, I think when you first have a clutch of chondros, you're, you're um, really, really shy about them, and you let them shed, and and then after that, you gosh, you find out how durable these things are while you sit there and peck at them and try to get them to eat, and, you know, uh, they're they're a lot more tougher than you think, and so the next time you take another crack at it, you say, I'm going to try these before shed, and I've had luck doing that, too, and so these days, right. uh, you know, it really depends on the, like, I just had... A little neonate hatch. It was um he's a lone lone wolf, but he or she hatched really, really fat with yolk, and um, and so I I have decided that I'm not going to mess with that well that animal, and I also don't have a group of them to kind of touch a few of them to kind of gauge the group, and so I'm going to leave him alone and let him shed, but um, and that's just because I'm kind of reading his unique situation all to himself, but certainly not opposed to feed number before shed and, and nothing, I mean, to be really honest with you, nothing bad happens. A lot of people are like freak out and they're like, oh, I wouldn't do that. Well, I mean, the worst that's going to happen is they just not eat and then you wait another week and they shed and then you try again. But I haven't had any long-term effect where I felt like I permanently damaged the neonate or, or left it in a position where it was a poor feeder from that point forward because I tapped it a few times with a pink uh, pre-shed so I,
1: i've done it both ways yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 i i think of all the if you just had to look at a, a trend people trying to feed their very first clutch of green trees they're probably not aggressive enough with their teas feeding
3: oh right yeah no you have to right you have to get you almost have to video it for someone and if you've got a guy reaching out to you trying to trying to uh uh get some advice. You know, you almost have to kind of, even if your neonate feeds pretty well, you have to kind of, kind of go stage it and pretend the technique to try to help mm-hmm. them understand just how hard you're tapping on the animal and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. I've, you know, I'm I'm still like compared to somebody like buddy, I'm freshly new into the nuances of feeding baby green trees, but all of the best like feeding tips I got, I got from buddy. Like so, oh, no doubt. <laughs> um So, like, buddy, why don't you? I, I'd love for you to chime in. Like, what are your what are your, some of your little pearls? Like, what? And I I know them all because I use them all. But why don't you why don't you tell them? Why don't you tell the audience? Like, what are some of your pearls? Uh, daytime feeding. Uh, that's that's like my number one thing. Um, yep.
0: you know, kind of stumbled upon that Wait. accidentally, and. I feed, you know, I feed 99% of my neonates during the day. I've had the best success with it. Uh, I have less runners. Um, I have found that um, if you get them to take a pink head or a mouse tail, if you let them kind of swallow the animal but not completely go back to, normal perching positions. A lot of time, if you immediately offer up a pink, um, they'll, they'll grab it and swallow it um, because they're already in that mode. Um, I have also found that if the neonate's not covered from above, so if you, if you pull the tub out and the neonate's right at the front, like Ken had mentioned earlier, um, I, I will either uh, turn that tub around so that the snake's covered from above, um, or sometimes, um, if I get an animal that uh, won't doesn't like to stay under the cover, I'll take a piece of newspaper and I offer the prey item. And if they grab it and hold the prey item, I just gently back up and I let the newspaper go over top of the tub. Um, which lets me then move on to another neonate. So instead of sitting there waiting for that one snake to kind of, you know, decide to swallow, which can you know be a long drawn out process for an animal that's not secure, um, you know, sitting there not doing anything by using a little piece of newspaper to cover the part of the tub where the snake's, you know, trying to eat that prey item, you can then move on to another tub and you can use a similar technique. And I think I've got a picture. I've got like seven or eight snakes that are, I'll take it down their meals, and they're just you know covered with just that newspaper, and it definitely works. Yeah, they definitely feel more secure.
1: So the tubs are open, but the the top of them is just yep.
0: covered with a, a piece of newspaper, right? Yep, absolutely. And it's actually the same yeah. size newspaper that I use for the bottoms. I just kind of wedge it in uh, where the tub, th- top of the tub meets the rack above it, and it just kind of hangs there right. by itself. So you can just kind of lift it up and work the snake. And if it you know, grabs the animal, you can just kind of set it down and walk away and do something else. Um, you know, I, that, think
1: that's, I mean, those that's, are the best things uh, to have. Yeah, I, and I think it's so important. I tell people all the time, you know, for people, that, uh, the babies that bite and drop, well, that usually happens because you offer the prey item, they strike it, and your immediate impulse is to pull your hand back, pull the tongs back. And then they drop. Right. So if you if you just get yourself into the habit of offering that prey item, they strike and they wrap and then you don't move your hand or the feeding tongs. You know, I've sat there sometimes and I know you use the newspaper trick, but I've I've sat there like a statue sometimes for five minutes. I literally will not move my hand or the tongs away from the animal until it starts to eat, you know, till it literally starts to eat the prey item, and you know, I just found that to be super helpful.
3: Bill, you you've got to stiff dead man fall over to the side, and then you kind of army crawl <laughs> out <of him. laughs>
0: Yeah, definitely. You've you been there without bluegill. I think I've that done that time. before.
1: You've done oh, yeah. that, right? I mean, haven't you done that? Back Where away Yep. <laughs> Yeah, you, or, or you don't move at all. I mean, and it's just so yeah. rewarding to when they start to just chomp that thing down, that pinky down. You're going, yeah, now I can move my hand. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: Um, I, I think tongs actually play a, a part of that too. Say that again? You know, I, think, I think that the the tongs actually um, – Uh, the whatever you're using as a tongue actually um, with your technique. Like I've had some really bad tongs or feet tweezers that were like super stiff and hard to, um, you know, hold a pinky there and just hard to manipulate. I like these uh, brand of uh, tweezers or tongs that I use that are really light and flexible and you can
1: manipulate things easily and you don't get a lot of hand fatigue. Yeah, they're 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 awesome. We should somehow try to link those because, you know, uh, that's all I use as well. We should try to link those to the uh, to the site because those things are gold. Yeah, I think I agree. We could
0: do that. We could do that. I could I can put those up. They're from Amazon. They're super cheap.
1: Um, yeah, they're maybe actually, the price they're actually well. like, maybe they've jacked them up. Uh, they're like eight bucks a set or something, but they're actually. Yeah. um Pieces that are used to to place like miniature train parts or something, right?
0: Right. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They're awesome.
0: Um, and the other thing is, you can use those tweezers actually to, like touch the snake with too, and kind of poke them a little bit to get them excited and um, interested in in grabbing something.
3: Buddy, I was going to say that. Um, you know, we're, they're praising you for your bestowing us, you know, giving us your feeding techniques. But um, that is the truth. I've gotten a lot of my tips from, from you. And um, and I think one of the ones that's been, you know, I just thought I'd highlight um, the ones that have been the most productive and one that has really actually really netted me some success is, um, feeding during the day and, and especially feeding runners during the day. And and essentially like a snake is asleep during the day and he's active at night. And if he's already a runner, then catching him while he's asleep allows me to get a little more agitation in on him and taps and technique and dancing the pink before he just totally flips ballistic and, and jumps off the perch and goes to running. And so I've, I've had some good luck with that. And then the other really, really great technique I think his name is Gary Elliott. He posted, he's from England. I think it was yeah. his first clutch ever. And it must've just given him yeah. hell yeah. because he yeah, developed I, I a know, whole.
1: I know what you're talking <laughs> yeah. about, John. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. He's just like a 30 minute yeah. video on this thing. And yeah. he's just yeah, the most a calm, rush. tranquil narration. He just, it's, it's, it's a gold mine for a new keeper, but he does yeah, this open is. and close technique on the tub and, it it truly works. Uh, there is no doubt that if you close that tub, give him four or five seconds, reset, yank it, you know, not yank it open, but bring it back open and be prepared to present at the right moment. It takes some technique, and once you get it down, they just have this response, and they, they really can um, – you can really get some good uh, success out of that. So. Yeah, John, definitely. That's, that's, it
0: definitely resets them. Yeah
1: absolutely the reset and the chondro that that's a great point that we didn't bring up absolutely close that tub and give him you know you said a few seconds a few seconds give him two three four minutes and you'll be surprised he'll be ready to go you know yeah
3: and, and buddy Buddy's
1: probably doing that with his newspaper you know if you think about it he's just doing it without disturbing the tub yeah 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 that's, yep. a, that's a great point that's a great point Yeah, hopefully somebody else. And then other some other that,
0: tricks we haven't thought of.
3: <laughs> yeah, and then other than that, beat them up. Don't be afraid. <laughs> you yeah, know, get on them. I, yeah. I don't. Yeah, you just have to, and that just takes time. You just
1: have to have a yeah, clutch that, and um, yep, strap
3: that. on, strap
1: in, and yeah, experiment. No the whole thing yep. comes down to experience. You, you, you learn, you learn something with every new animal and with every new clutch, you learn something about establishing them. Definitely. Definitely.
0: Yeah. I, I think that that's true. I think once you have a, a clutch under your belt, your, your competence as a condor keeper is just, you know, tenfold prior to establishing a clutch. Um, You know, after I had my first clutch of chondros and I was actually still in the process of acquiring snakes, you know, it kind of felt like, uh, you know, uh, one of the big things people would ask, you know, I would ask people like, is it feeding regularly? How aggressive does it feed? And then after I did a clutch or two, I was like, I really don't care because I think I can, I have the skill now, even if it comes in and it's a well-established animal and it doesn't feed, that I now have the skill set as a keeper to, uh, you know, work it out and get the animal going again if I have to reestablish it. Um, and I think most most new folks they just uh, you know they they just walk away too soon. They'll have an animal, they'll present a prey item to it, and the animal like will sh- strike and grab it, but then drop it. And so they just you know take take the prey item out, close the tub, walk away, and they're done for the day. And and I'm like, oh no. If that thing's still striking and grabbing that prey item, you just go back in there and you just keep on doing yeah. it so it's not doing it anymore. Or it swallows the pinky or whatever. Um, you know, you just can't you can't be easily discouraged. Um you know, you just gotta have that you know, the grit to stick with it and work it out. Um, I will say guys, we actually dropped Ken. Ken dropped out of the room, and because we're in extended time, he is not able to rejoin.
1: Oh, oh,
0: yeah, bummer.
1: Damn, damn. Well, that's all good. I mean, we pretty much come to the end of our of our scheduled outline anyway, uh, buddy. You know, we're both old. We try to keep us to t- t- two hours anyway. <laughs> you've got you've got to get up and go to work tomorrow. I don't. <laughs> but regardless, <laughs> regardless <laughs> you know, we like we like that two-hour time frame. So
0: There you go. Yep,
1: absolutely. All right. Well, Ken, even though
0: you're not with us now, um, thanks uh, for joining us. certainly appreciate it. Um, we'll have to get you back on in the future. I think it's a Texas thing, Bill, because when we had Matt on, he dropped out right at the end of the show, too. Maybe you guys are a right. company down there is uh doing, doing something to you guys. Um, maybe we'll have to have Matt and Ken back, come back on together and uh, finish yeah, out the show good. with us. But John always, it's great to have you on, you know, you articulate well, um, you know, it's a get, pass out a lot of great knowledge. And hopefully people will, uh, listen to this a few times to, uh, hopefully maybe comprehend, understand what you, what you're saying about how to care for these animals. And, um, Definitely a lot of great advice. I Appreciate you passing that on to everyone.
3: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I, yeah, a lot of people. Help me more than else, so. Happy to share. Happy to. Help. Yeah,
1: awesome. John. Uh, I'll I'll reiterate. You're a you're a wealth of knowledge. You're a foundation in the community, and um, you know it's people like you that are enable us to have people on the show and spread our knowledge and keep our community strong and clean and uh we're very thankful that you came on.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me.
1: All right. Let's wrap right. it up, buddy. John,
0: one more Let's ask John one more question though. Sure. John, how to how do people get a hold of you if they're dressed in an animal? Oh, um well,
3: oh well I should have done a better job marketing so um <laughs> i have a facebook page uh called mid atlantic arboreals um you can find me and then I'm just on m d f and you're certainly at welcome to um i just use my personal email and my personal phone number and and my personal name and things like that and i don't I don't have a you know mid atlantic arboreals at sales dot com or anything like that i just reach out to me on Facebook or um, just send me a message. I'd be glad to give you my phone number and text with you and talk to you on the phone and chat condros. I, I I really enjoy um, way, way, way more than what we see on Facebook. I, do a lot. I just discuss snakes with my friends and um, kind of in constant discussion. And I'm happy to chat snakes with anybody that wants to chat them. Thanks, John. Great. Yeah. Thank you, John. Have a, thank you guys. Have a good night. You too, guys. Y'all have a great night. Thanks for having me.
1: You're welcome. Bye. Yep. Yeah, bye bye. Bye. Hey, buddy, before Hi, we Bill. close out, I miss I I missed one thing that I wanted to say um in the intro. Yeah. Um uh, Are you familiar with there's a, a gentleman named Justin Smith. He has just started another uh Condro uh podcast or radio show called the chondro Cast. Are are you familiar with that? Yeah I did see that. I saw that. Okay. Yeah. Well so he's he's had a few guests on. He's had um he's had David Brahms on. He's had uh Mark Hager on and I think he they've maybe done a handful, five or six shows. Um but I wanted to reach out, let the listeners know about it. It's called the Condrocast. It's on Facebook uh, and i'm going to be a guest um god i haven't been a guest on a on a radio show in i can't even remember how long so uh that's going nice. to be a lot of work that's going to be a lot of work i mean <laughs> you know you know us we <laughs> like just get the experts on and cruise right um that's, that's going to happen sometime that's going to happen sometime in march so um awesome you know i just well, uh, you'll I'd have just a day like for us. not yet it will third okay. week in March. Well, yeah, I don't have a date yet, but nice. I'll share it when I do. So, yeah. Guys, that. Uh, pay attention. Awesome. To that. cast with Justin Smith. Um, follow him on Facebook.
0: Oh, wonderful. All right, Bill. Another great show.
1: Absolutely. This one went by fast.
0: It did. All right, my friend.
1: All right. Take
0: care. Have a good night. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Have a good evening, everyone. We'll see you very soon with another episode.
2: Bye. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing.
0: And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino.
1: They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
3: No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed.